Hello and welcome to another edition of the Sitcom Club. Joining myself, Gary, and Tilt. Hello. Is G Baker. Hello. How are you doing, G? I'm not too bad, thank you. How are you? I'm no bad, I'm no bad at all. Today we are discussing Dinner Ladies and this podcast was originally on our sitcom club timetable for May before the sad news of Victoria Wood's passing last month. As well as discussing Dinner Ladies itself, we'll also talk a little bit about Victoria Wood's overall career and in particular what you might call a sitcom within a sketch show, namely Acorn Antiques. But let me ask yourself, G, when did you first see Victoria Wood? Was Dinner Ladies actually the first thing you saw Victoria Wood in? Dinner Ladies wasn't, it was... A few clips of as seen on TV. I can't for the life of me remember how old I was. I was at primary school, definitely at primary school. Me and my friend, we used to watch a lot of uh, French and Saunders. We were just on YouTube and we just stumbled across Victoria Wood and just found her the funniest thing. I think it was the shoe shop sketch, actually, that we first saw. Just thought it was the funniest thing ever. And now, about 11 years later, probably more, we still find it hilarious. And it snowballed from there. And I just realised what a funny clever talented woman she was until i know that you you're particularly clued up on a lot of victoria wood's work and like things like for example individual shows like all day breakfast and so on i'm not an expert i first became aware of her through as seen on tv and i will confess i failed to go backwards from there never caught up with wood and walters yeah as a new project of hers came out i would take a look and sometime we should probably do the series of six it was kind of a sitcom, but also unusually compartmentalised. It was called Victoria Wood Presents. That's right, 1989, yes. Yes, yeah. that would be the interesting one to talk about, because she's the only element linking every episode. Yeah, they're yeah. all self-contained, similar in a way to things like the Galton Simpson Playhouse. First of all, before we get to Dinner Ladies then, the one particular part of Victoria Wood's repertoire that was shown again and again on the, the news couple of weeks back was of course Acorn Antiques and I was just saying to yourselves just before we started our recording just now that if that was around today a little mini sitcom within a sketch show I'm sure that there would be a very quick idea hatched to then have that as a spin-off straight away you'd be thinking oh we can do something with this we can expand this to half an hour and make it its own sitcom and so on but that seemingly was never the case and it just exists in its nice little three or four minute skits in as seen on TV. I think it would be difficult to sustain the parody for a full half hour. If it had become a sitcom, it would have to be more like the last as seen on TV special with the behind the scenes documentary there, flipping between the onset and behind the scenes worlds. And it'd probably be centered around Bo Beaumont as Mrs. Overall. And that's sort of what happened later on, isn't it? Because the midlife Christmas from 2009 a lot of that was behind the scenes about Mrs. Overall and what she'd done since the Acorn Antiques and so on. And of course it spun off into a stage show, so I never actually got around to seeing that. I don't know if it opened after I'd left the UK, but as I understand it, the story was, it wasn't the, just the characters of Acorn Antiques, there was a behind-the-scenes story that drove the whole plot. That particular sketch has really stood the test of time. Even though it's always spoken about in relation to Crossroads, people can still recognise bits and pieces of it, say if you're comparing it to something like, I mean, I suppose to an extent, comparing it to, say, maybe EastEnders, certainly the Australian soaps. And it's not exactly, like, it's not an area that nobody else has, has gone into. There's plenty of shows, Fry and Laurie, for example, around about the same time, were parodying Neighbours. But it's got so many little details in it. You reminded me till, and I saw this again from somebody else on Twitter today, there's like one little thing from Duncan Preston in the background in one of them. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
gets when he's dead and he gets up and he walks back. He's seen through the window <laughs> doing the go for a drink gesture to the crew. <laughs> Can I come out with a controversial opinion? Please do. I actually prefer the Mal to Acorn Antiques. Ah, yeah, no, I did. I saw you say that on the old social media the other day. And the Mal, that's from the 1992 Christmas show All Day Breakfast. Which is not on DVD. You just made me too. I was just going to say that. I was just going to say that. But no, of course, the Mal was specifically moving the parody from Crossroads to El Dorado. The sudden forced bursts of French. But the thing I love was the massive info dumps, including the very first line. <laughs> Tea? The hot drink? Remind me what that line is of Duncan Preston's. As a committed Aradonian, I prefer a cocoa-based beverage. <laughs> and he, the lingerie shot, Pippa's Nicks, he, with his accent, he pronounced it, Papa's Nicks. Victoria would, of course, she came to prominence, first of all, in New Faces. And I saw Les Dennis tweeting about how he'd said that she would win, she had said that he would win, and actually not 11 won, as it turned out. She was then sort of resident singer-songwriter on That's Life for a few years. And of course, Wooden Walters, you mentioned as well, till that was Granada, 1982, as Steel on TV comes along, 1985, I think it was. And that's really what's then propelled into stardom. And from that point onwards, then you've got just a success. I'm still thinking of... of a line from All Day Breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> the aerobics instructor played by Susie Blake. Come on, Grandpa, you can do it. Grandpa there thinking he can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> and the great surreal moment of uh, <laughs> that silent movie footage with Celia Emery collapsing <laughs> yes I remember a friend I can't remember what sketch he was referring to either I was having a conversation with a friend and he went oh was that sketch I can't remember was it Victoria Wood or Monty Python I think we never found out because this conversation just went there <laughs> like very few people would say that and yet that's quite perceptive I think there's also a lot to be said a comparison between Victoria Wood and Vic Reeves. Mm-hmm. The love of sounds, certain sounds. Isn't there a line, maybe one of the Kitty sketches about having an ovary flare up in the gondoliers? Yeah. <laughs> and it's just picking the right sound. That bridge between Alan Bennett and Vic Reeves is Victoria Wood. <laughs> so as seen on TV began 1985, and from that point onwards, I think that she's somebody who was quite selective about what she did. So it wasn't as if she had a new show on every single year. But like you said, she had the series of little plays in 1989. Gee, did you ever see Pat and Margaret? Oh my God, I love Pat and Margaret. That was one of the first things after the odd sketch of Victoria Woods that I saw. Actually, the night after I found out about Victoria Wood person, that was what I watched in tribute to her. I loved that film so much. I'm surprised, to be honest, that that's not something that gets repeated multiple times a year on Gold, because it really should be. It should. It's just lovely. It's just bittersweet. It's just fantastic. And it does have that wonderful piece of dialogue between Duncan Preston and Fora Hurd, where she says, you've had sex, where? Not on the (laughs) eider down. (laughs) (laughs) That's the best line in the whole thing. It's interesting the talent she could attract. Yeah, absolutely. Like Thora Heard, like Patricia Routledge, and the Coronation Street alumni that she managed to draw in. Least two of which in Dinner Ladies. Possibly more if you thought about it. Okay, Dinner Ladies then. So Dinner Ladies begins in 1998. There are only two series of it. There are 16 episodes. It's an unusual arrangement. We've got six 
half hours in series one, 10 in series two, which went over from 99 into 2000, including Christmas and New Year episodes as well. This is it's a bit of an oddity because I know that this is something which I know Victoria would mention this later on. And it's interesting looking back at this. She actually said that the timing of it wasn't ideal for her because they had decided to make this free walls videotape show with an audience and according to wikipedia let's just advise you just now the audience members were served toast from the toaster that was used on the set so it says that apparently that's from a cutting in the uh, local newspaper in hull now we, we can't get independent verification of that but that surely is the only sitcom where the audience were ever served toast from the cast at the same time as this dinner ladies is being made as a traditional show along comes the royal family the Royal Family wasn't the first show ever to have single camera, no audience, but suddenly that becomes in vogue. And before you know it, that's the norm and that's how sitcoms are being made from then on. So I think there was perhaps a suggestion that Dinner Ladies in comparison sort of looked dated, whereas I don't think it does. I don't Not think Dinner Ladies, looking at it now, I don't think it looks no, dated. far from it. I think it's just purely an accident of where it arrived in the schedules because it was pretty much the same time. It was the autumn of 1998 and there's Dinner Ladies on BBC One, BBC Two, there's the Royal Family. If we're going to start citing Wikipedia, there is the contradictory information about why it stopped after Series 2. They mentioned Victoria Wood saying, you know, don't go on too long, Faulty Towers only ran 12. And then at some other point, she seems to have said it was cancelled. Okay, I never heard that it had been cancelled. It makes sense in some ways. Those last couple of episodes with their definitive ending, it feels like they're more prefigured than they actually are. I thought that. I thought she'd always intended just to do two series. And if you look at series two and how it's constructed, going back, everything interlinks. It comes round into one big circle. It is like she's carefully planned that right from the start of penning, maybe even the end of series one. But I feel you could actually stop with the New Year special. You end on a strong emotional beat, and you could get a third series from there. There's nothing that really breaks the format until the last couple of shows. On the one hand, yes, you could look at it and say, well, this is definitely a show that's led carefully to its finish. Or is it a case that she's doing natural story movement so that there was a feeling of progress, but there's nothing to say this is over until right at the end? There could be that suggestion that it's like, well, okay, if you've got to cancel it, cancel it, but you've got to give me this amount of time to end it properly. And, well, to begin with, it's an unusual show in as much as you've got a story arc, you've got plots, it's not as if it's a show which, like the aforementioned Royal Family, is much more concerned with purely dialogue and it being a sort of very dull backdrop. But at the same time, you don't really have a lot in terms of plot points dictating the pace of the programme. It's not as if you can spot, like you can do with some sitcoms, you can sort of think, okay, well, here's set up and we're going to get the issue with the status quo coming in about now and okay, and here comes resolution and so on. It doesn't work like that. Sometimes you can have characters just sort of wander in and out. Like a lot of the best sitcoms, of course, you know, canteen, busy place, and you can have your core staff on one side of the shutters and then the other side of the shutters, like, for example, say, Porridge, where you've got all manner of different prisoners and prison guards, or, say, Fala Ted, where you've got the whole extended Catholic church who can all come and visit and so on. You've got this constant stream of other employees and visitors and so on. So it can be as small or as big an ensemble piece as you want it to be. So it's very fluid. It's not got a fixed format that's easy to predict. 
Okay, so let's have a little look at the basic setup. So geographically, we're in Manchester. That's stated, you know, sometimes different sitcoms and what have you. It can be a bit ambiguous about where they are, but we're clearly in a factory in Manchester, and this is the factory's canteen. So we've got Brenda, that's Victoria Wood, and Tony, Andrew Dunn. And he is canteen manager, and we've got a sort of will they, won't they, which is pretty obvious from the start. Yeah, even from the first episode it is. There's that obvious sexual flirtation and chemistry there. It has to be said, Till, that it's a tribute to Victoria Wood's writing, because she's the sole writer of this show, that you can have a character like Tony who openly has pornography in his office and yet you're still on his side i think probably most occasions he would be the heel brenda and tony serve interesting functions as being the two voices of sanity there's the optimistic voice of sanity and the pessimistic voice of sanity but one thing people have said about this show is victoria wood did not give herself the plum role she never does though whatever she does she never gives herself the funny lines she always takes a back step and lets other people shine but it's interesting that in this, it's she's even sharing a particular narrative function with another person. Not just funny lines, but it allows you to get what would be the most amusing reaction here and have it work. This bizarre thing has happened. We now need the reaction from a sane person, but will it be an upbeat or downbeat reaction? We have a character to suit each function. It's a nice seesaw that goes on throughout. It doesn't feel laboured, the will they, won't they? I mean, obviously, it comes more to the fore as you get on into series two. But certainly, you don't have the who's the boss problem of it being too <laughs> soon and then you can start <laughs> rowing back or anything like that. It's a nice, natural build-up. And Bren is somebody that you can't help but feel sympathetic for because she's not only so nice and down-to-earth and reliable, but she's also quite put upon, I think. She lets people take advantage of her. Yeah, and then especially... Um... I guess you kind of learn that she just lives in a bed set and when she's on about having Christmas on her own and she's bought a knockoff carry-on DVD and she's going to have like spaghetti hoops or something for Christmas dinner, you think she's like the most likable person in that. She shouldn't be having that and you do sort of feel sorry for her. And she's very sympathetic, yeah. So we've got a fabulous cast, as you'd expect in a Victoria Wood show. And you've got a lot of the people that she's worked with previously on the sketch show and so on. Let's give special mention to... I think he's possibly my favourite character in the whole thing, Stan. Till, this is really unfair because I haven't asked you to do this in advance, but would you care to hazard a guess, and I don't have the right answer in front of me, so say whatever you want, but would you care to hazard a guess as to just how many times Stan actually says, my dad was a desert rat, you know? <laughs> I thought you were going to mention the fact that uh, Duncan Preston went to Bradford Boys Grammar. Oh, no, I know. He makes him a posh He makes him a public school boy. Oh, really? Yes. Okay, right, right. Stan represents something I was thinking about. Some conversations I've been having recently and people are taking the men are from Mars, women are from Venus approach. And I can't entirely join in because American masculinity is different from British masculinity. Or there seems to be an element of British masculinity doesn't exist in America. And Stan is kind of it. When he's talking about, I mean, he talks about him being in the Territorial Army. He talks about his father's wartime experience. He never talks about his father killing anybody. It's a weirdly unaggressive, but also militaristic view of things. He's talking more about the privations and the inconvenience. Shaving in sand. <laughs> making cocoa for 35 men in a hubcap or however it works. 
if this was an American show, if they made an American version, and you had this, well, this guy, he was in the Territorial Army, always talking about his father's war experience, he'd turn out completely differently in an American show, I think. There's a lot of foggy Dewhurst in Stan. I think maybe it's because they don't really have an officer class in the US. The guy you're working for above you is just as aggressive as you. All the way up. It's Sergeant Majors all the way up to the top. So I think it breeds a different culture and you can grow different comic personalities out of it. Well, we'll talk about that in a second because, of course, the second episode is the one with the royal visit. So you've actually got a little element of that, particularly with Stan. But yes, if this was an American show, I can imagine it being everybody would be a bit louder. And yeah, you wouldn't have that sort of pecking order. You do have a pecking order on this to an extent because different characters, either because of their position in the factory or perhaps maybe they've given themselves airs and graces and so on. But we'll, we'll go into that. Well, should we just talk about the men for a bit? Should we talk about northern men? <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking in shots like Last of the Summer Wine, in shots like In Loving Memory, there is this thing of the men are not necessarily henpecked. But there is this element of, oh, right, is that what you're doing? Okay, hi, you get on with that. The women are energetic and quite aggressive and bumptious. And the men are, yes, all right, love. It doesn't matter whether they're being wimps or whether they're just, they're reeds that bend strong but flexible. There is that element running through northern comedy of a kind of matriarchy, but maybe in some ways a self-deceiving one. Keeping up appearances. How keeping up appearances is... Is set in the South, isn't it? But it's written more from that point of view of, yeah, whatever you want to do, dear, that's fine. Yeah, anything for a quiet life. And Dolly and Jean's husbands. Which I think, this, do we ever actually see an aggressive man? No, I don't think we... we get a bit of the suggestion about her, and here, start the spoilers, Brenda's husband being an alcoholic. There's something wrong there. But then he's obviously, without giving away spoilers, obviously Tony ends up meeting him, and then he sort of pally with him so if he was that horrible i can't see tony especially his relationship to Bran, getting on with him and having a drink with him and also gene's ex-husband when he starts getting a bit sort of too big for his boots and what have you then that's when stan steps in says right okay enough done do you remember when we're talking till about last of summer wine we talked about sid and ivy and how even though they're arguing all the time in the cafe they also go cycling together and they're still arguing then, but the point was that if they'd actually been unhappy with each other, then they wouldn't also go out with each other at the same time as well. That's the kind of relationship I mean, though. Ivy is grumpy and angry pretty much all the time, and Sid might occasionally try and dodge her, but he is not a hempecked husband. He's not a yes dear, whatever you say, dear kind of wimp. Not that seaside postcard style, and it seems to be just that little bit from... Blackpool to Hull. He's not Howard. No. <laughs> well, I was actually going to say, as soon as you said the expression Northern men, is there such a thing really? Or are, are there, presumably there are distinct differences between men from Manchester and Liverpool and Leeds and so on and so on. I have disagreements with people about this. I think the North is more generic than people either side of the Pennines really like to admit to. Maybe it's because I'm from West Yorkshire, so I'm practically getting into that area. You know, Manchester was only an hour's drive away from me, whereas other parts of Yorkshire were a lot farther away. But I think it's more a town and country split, and Yorkshire just has a lot more countryside. So let's have a look at the other 
characters. First of all, we've got, well, I suppose you'd call him a double actor, Dolly and Jean. Gee, tell me a little bit about Dolly and Jean and how, I suppose in their own way, they're like a sort of couple, I suppose. Yeah, I love Dolly and Jean. I just love their friendship. It's true friendship when you insult each other all the time. And that's what Dolly and Jean are. They're like a pair of teenage school kids, really, just insulting each other there. I think they've been best friends a while. And I think from how they talk, they live ever in the same neighbourhood or neighbouring neighbourhoods. Because obviously Jean gives Dolly a lift to work or Dolly gives Jean a lift to work. They're middle-aged and... Did they both work at the Cafe Bonbon before? Because Jean seems to know a lot about it, because obviously Dolly goes on about it a lot, because it's where she worked, which was more superior to the canteen that she works in now. Which I never understood. If it was that good, why did she leave? Maybe there's a story there. Maybe there's something untold. That's mm-hmm. that's what I never understood, but I'm not quite sure if Jean worked there as well. If it was that great, would it have closed down? Well, I could have been a victim of inverted commas progress and so on and you know a lot of places going to the wall is you know new fashionable starbucks and what have you comes in instead and but i mentioned about some characters give themselves airs and crazies and i suppose you could say a lot about dolly i am curious how far back dolly and jean's friendship might go i was just thinking about that likely lads where bob and terry and thelma go and visit their friend brenda who's married a minor public school boy ex-public school boy, and she's got the airs and graces, but they're all from the same neighbourhood. In fact, Brenda Boyle in Likely Lads actually was from a slightly lower class part of town than Thelma. So it's almost that thing of, you know, it's like, I, I didn't actually grow up in the next street from you, so come off it, hang on a minute. They did that in Morecambe and Wise occasionally, didn't they? Oh yeah, Milverton Street School, yes. So Dolly is Thelma Barlow, at that point most recently seen in Coronation Street, and Jean is Anne Reed. And Anne Reed, of course, had been in all manner of things with Victoria Wood previously. And there are the occasional references to Granada, actually. There's a reference to Granada Studios in Dinner Ladies. Yeah, because isn't that where Bren goes for a quiz show, Granada Studios? Yes. So we've also got... Oh, they're not so much of a double act, but in terms of there are sort of arrival times at work and so on, I suppose you could say. You've got Twinkle, who is Maxine Peake, who, of course, these days turns up in everything, dramas and plays and so on. And you've got Nita, who is Shubna Gulati. And, of course, these days, is she still in Coronation Street? No, she got she? killed off a couple of years ago. <gasps> oh, dear me. <laughs> oh, well, I'm out of touch. Twinkle is, how would you put it? Is dense too harsh a word? In some ways, she's quite street smart. But in other ways, she's, she's not particularly dippy. interested in yeah. learning about... Yeah, she's not really interested in learning about the the intricacies of the canteen or the catering business in general. I suppose it's also the fact that she's stuck with... Obviously, apart from Anita, everybody else is a lot older. And she's always going on and how they're always talking about ragtag and bobtail and things that she doesn't know or have any interest in at all. So that's probably part of why she's a bit ignorant and doesn't really care she just turns up because she has to (laughs) actually you remember our own version of nearest and dearest you know the whole thing of the the greetings that uh, Dewey Jewel gives to that character (laughs) yes here he comes danger man and we're thinking it it needs to go beyond (laughs) oh here he is game of thrones I was getting into that that some of the pop cultural references in dinner ladies are very left field she's not exactly Joe 90 (laughs) 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 <laughs> this will need annotations in years to come this show and actually 
Bren, I think she would absolutely love Talking Pictures TV, wouldn't she? Because that seems to be her sort of preferred cinematic era. She knows films of yesteryear. She knows old yeah, film stars. Yeah, that was so her special subject, wasn't it, on the quiz show? I'm totally trivial. Okay, so we've got our, as was you would say, your, your, your core group. We've got Bren, Tony, we've got Dolly, we've got Jean, we've got Twinkle, we've got Anita, we've got Stan. Technically speaking, that's everybody on one side of the shutters because we always start beginning of the day, shutters down, so on and so on. We've got our bread man, of course, who, I don't know if he ever mentions this, but apparently he fell off a <laughs> diving board in Guernsey once. And let's bring Petula into the mix. So Petula is Julie Waters, and she's not quite an occasional character, but she doesn't appear in every episode. She appears in roughly about half of the episodes. And she is Bren's mother, and she's abandoned Bren as a baby. And so... The relationship is somewhat terse. Petula is... Is she a fantasist or is she a pathological liar? Both, I think. She can't help but just spout nonsense whenever she meets anybody, including Bren. And Bren knows that what she's being told by her mother is, is just utter nonsense, but she claims to know all these different celebrities and film stars and had all these wonderful life experiences and so on and and then usually finishes it by saying, would you slip a couple of sausages in my bag? Because, you know, she's technically homeless. She's living in a caravan. And frequently she will play the sort of emotional blackmail card on Bren. And what have you. So, okay, now I sense, Till, that, that you've got a little bit of, sort of hesitancy towards Petula. And I think actually I'm on the same page as yourself. She kind of breaks the reality of the show a bit. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was thinking just earlier on today, actually, that she's the only character in this who I think of as a sitcom character rather than being, you know, just basically a, a real person. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that too. Gee, did you find yourself getting into Dinner Ladies right from the word go? Did it take you a few episodes to start really getting absorbed in it? I, I mean, personally speaking, I, I, I liked it from the first episode. I liked the crosstalk. I liked the dialogue. I found it very engaging. And to be honest, it wasn't so much the plot that, that made me come back each week. It was just the fact that, like a lot of shows, I just liked the overall setup and crew and so yeah on. no i totally agree i mean i think the first episode i watched was scandal so the one where petula's going out with the 16 year old and they have the jeremy kyle type show thing going on in the canteen but yeah i thought i thought that was quite interesting it was funny it's one of those cozy sort of programs it's my typical sitcom that i like it's not particularly hilarious but you've got the characters and it's the characters that make the show what it is and they're all so individual and so unique and there's that little spark in each of them and they all sort of bounce off each other and obviously Victoria Woods just genius with her writing and her dialogue and it all just comes together so wonderfully and I think that's what makes it a joy to watch and it's just so easy to watch and at the end of the day it's relatable because they all have their own issues going on and you think well hang on a minute my I'm not worried about what I'm stressing about at the moment because they've got issues and you just forget everything it's just great. Of course because I've only mentioned so far the cast members on one side of the shutters, we should now introduce characters on the other side. There are recurring characters who come in, people who work in the factory, people who work in the office section of the factory and so on, or all queuing up to get their slices of white or slices of brown or whatever it may be. Sometimes yogurt, strangely enough. I don't, I don't see the appeal. But one particular character that we see right from the outset, from day one, is Philippa, who is Celia Imrie. And she's not from 
Renly's part. She's arrived from the south and she has all these different ideas because she is basically HR consultant. So she's just arrived. She has these ideas for bringing everybody closer together and bonding. And let me, let me just say right now that people may not know this, but there was a time in Scotland not that long ago where for two weeks of the year, instead of PE, you got Scottish country dancing at schools in Scotland. And I had it. And I might as well confess this now. I think enough time has passed that I, I don't expect any kind of repercussions. If it happens, it happens. I'll do my time. But I did actually once fake an ankle injury to get out of Scottish country dancing. So, yeah, there, there is. It's, it's on the record now. Sorry about that. That was, I think it was probably about 1990, thereabouts. So I think I'm probably safe. Uh, there is actually a proposal. Seriously, there is a proposal being spoken about just now to reintroduce that into Scottish schools. Don't do it. Do not let this happen. <laughs> I thought I just mentioned that uh, Scandal features Linda Barron. Yes, it does. She's Carmel, isn't she, from Roundup, Northern Roundup, the news programme. The other reason it's worth mentioning is that Linda Barron actually does come from Ermston. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even think that was a real place. As does Ian McShane. But because he's not in Dinner Ladies, that's his loss. Ah, right. I would have loved at some point in Deadwood for Al Swearingen to say, I come from Ermston. There's two ways to get there. <laughs> this might be a slight in his character, I don't know, but I get the impression that Linda Barron would be very happy to speak about Ermston, whereas I think if you asked Ian McShane, you know, he, he, he'd probably want to talk about all the, the glamorous places that he's been as an actor rather than where he was brung up. But uh, who, who is Linda Barron supposed to be? I don't think Linda Barron's meant to be a specific person. I'm not quite sure Victoria Wood does that one-for-one style of parody. She's very good at more general capturing the mood of and types. She's a news presenter, isn't she, that was trying to break out from what the um, canteen girls are saying. So she goes all Jeremy Kyle and sets up her own little show, or Tricia probably because she's a woman, to try and get all the agony ant stuff. Yeah, you get the impression that she's had a fill of regional TV. She's looking for a network. She, yeah, she was there initially, wasn't she, as a news reporter to cover the uh, protest going on by Clint's mum. And then obviously they drag her in to try and sort it all out. So let's have a wee look at the episode guide itself. So in that first series, because we've only got six episodes in that first series, we have established in episode one, we've established basically who everybody is. We've established that Tony is having chemotherapy and that's an ongoing story that continues throughout we've met petunia and we know a little bit about the home lives of of everyone just a small smattering of details but not a great deal and that will obviously develop as time goes on in some ways it breaks a rule of how the personal lives of the characters develop sometimes things just happen an episode just starts and stan's dad is in hospital it feels sometimes like they don't work up to things. Even the cancer storyline. I mean, at no point do we see Tony's hair falling out. It's just mentioned. It it seems to move very quickly. I think that was the whole point. I think the whole point of Dinner Ladies for Victoria Wood was the fact that she wanted them to have separate work lives and home lives. And it was just something that was mentioned in passing during the working day. It wasn't something that you got really involved in because it happened outside the workplace. Yeah, it's it's not a flaw. It just it's a really interesting texture to the show. I've, in fact, something that we kept 
coming up upon in the last series of Sitcom Club was the idea of everybody being the hero of their own stories and even very small incidental characters. There's just little things indicating that, yes, when they go off, their lives will continue. Even now, too, fell off a diving board in Guernsey. We get more detailed every time he talks about it. At suit of any's character, 12 rounds, low-fat spread. Jane. At one point, I thought, is there a suggestion that she's an alcoholic? Yeah. There's never any sense that it really gets worse before the show finishes, or any sense that she recovers unless I missed it, because this show can work so quickly and so subtly sometimes that it's possible I could miss it. But at first it's like, oh, you know, I had a heavy round of drinking. And then one time she mentions they went straight from wine to Sambuca and then Night Nurse. Yeah. I was like, okay. Her hangovers were getting worse and worse. Yeah. When you're saying they tell about things happen, like, for example, Stan's dad and so on, this is something which I think tends to get hugely overlooked. But series two, it's not in series one, but series two begins with a date. And that's it. That's the only reference to it. So it's not overt. It's not like you can see the date and time on a calendar on the wall or anything like that throughout. But it does clearly state right at the outset, okay, we're in April now. Now we're in August. Now we're in November and so on. And so it's actually built in to it, this passing of time. So, whereas in regular sitcoms, of course, yeah, you can have situations where suddenly some, you know, huge plot development has happened and then usually by the end of that episode it's gone away because they don't want it hanging around for next week and so on. This has actually got that vehicle built into it where you can suddenly have somebody say what's happening in an ongoing situation that we didn't know anything about last week. Sometimes the gap can be quite sizable. Sometimes it can be like two or three months. It's like markers, that is, because as you go on, like there's the story arcs there, especially with like Anita's story. Obviously, if people haven't seen it, I'm not going to give it away. But then you look at like New Year's Eve and then you work back and you look at like Anita and you think, oh, okay, that, that figures that out. So yeah, I think, I think that's more of a sort of clever marker that she's done that for. And obviously it's building up to Christmas, New Year's Eve and that. It's quite interesting that they've got that. It breaks rules of pacing, and I think it willfully breaks them. I don't think it's just Victoria Wood not having written a sitcom before, because she's written plays. She knows about the structure. She's just decided that to tell the story in the way she is, in a way that reflects a real-life workplace. Because for all that this is the three walls and the performances are all a bit up, there's definitely some sense. Actually, I want to come to a question. I once heard somebody talking about bread. And they were saying that Carla Lane was writing bread when she'd kind of lost touch with her roots a bit. Dinner ladies, did Victoria would do a lot of research? I've got some faint feeling in the back of my head that she actually hung out in some canteens for a bit first while writing it. This is somebody who is aware of how workplaces can sound. It's all compressed. It's every single funny thing said in a workplace all crammed up into a few weeks. There's God knows how many years worth of good comebacks in there but there's a realism to it that doesn't advertise itself in the way it's staged it's very effective now till you've got potentially controversial point of view regarding one of the characters although i don't think it's actually all that controversial because i'm inclined to agree but it's just about philippa maybe not being as nice as she tries to project there is a point when she's called out there is again it's something that seems more obvious in retrospect that when brenda actually loses her temper of Philippa's inability to organise when the decorators are coming in. There is a sense that, yeah, Philippa has actually just thought that if she's nice to these people, she doesn't have to do her job that well. 
Have you thought about why Philippa has that job, though? Because I think she only got that job because she was sleeping with Mr Michael. Obviously, later on, she gets bored of him and she's trying to dump him and she ends up going out with that Tom guy who works there. So I think she is a bit of a user. She doesn't really care about Mr Michael or his feelings. She's more annoyed that he's dumped her before she had the chance to dump him. And she doesn't really seem that bothered. Yes, an HR is a cushy number. In a factory like that as well. I don't think she's written as a nasty character, but she's not quite as nice as she acts. And there are times when she's a little bit negligent because I don't think she realises how sophisticated the reactions of the workers will be. Yeah, she clearly doesn't know what she's doing. And I think she's only there because she's with Mr Michael. She's quite a selfish character, actually. She turns quite a lot of the conversations on herself and comes out with the most bizarre things about herself and doesn't really seem to regard the other characters and empathise with them as well as... I don't know whether that's a stereotypical southern-northern thing where the northern people are more empathetic and the southern people sort of just disregard them, but... I know this might just sound as if I'm sort of looking at two different parts played by the same actress and making a comparison, but I think there's something in it for... I thought you were going to mention the part that she plays in Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> I think very much, uh, I think Philippa is an X-Wing pilot. <laughs> I was going to say for a nicer version of Philippa. So Philippa can be nice. She's, she's not a bad character, but yes, I know what you mean. I think that she's capable of not nice behavior. Yeah, for a, a, a nice version of Philippa, I think... Pat's assistant in Pat and Margaret. Yeah. Claire. Would you agree? I would. She... Yeah, definitely. Because she's very put upon and she tolerates Pat's outrageous behaviour and yet she's always polite to be around her. She wants her, to right? help, but it's her job. Yeah, she's sort of stuck between her job and the people that she's working for. And I guess to a degree, Philippa is because she does show some interest in the characters. But then at the same time, she does say, like, when she's talking to Stan and she goes, I'm not bothered, I don't actually care what you're saying, Stan. She cares to a degree and then sometimes she just, oh, I can't be bothered with this today. I think in that particular instance, I think it's justified because Stan so often cites irrelevant details about himself or his father and, and I think that's the point in which she just breaks. But in a nice way, she just she's still trying to be polite when she says it, but she's basically saying, I think that's actually the point where she's leaving, in a way. And she's sort of announcing that she's not going to have to listen to him anymore, so she just see what she thinks in a way. Well, she's going to leave when the factory closes, isn't she? Because he wants a new toaster. Yeah, that's it. That's what I'm thinking of. Actually, I thought that was the bit where she did come across as actually quite nasty. That bit really jarred with me. There is also the bit where she really loses her temper at the characters because she needs a traffic update. And my note here is, that's the point where she ceases to be a sitcom character. That's almost like she's a person from the real world in a sitcom. Because they're all just doing their lines and their usual crosstalk shtick. Gary, you talk about the sitcom rule where you can actually say things that are quite hurtful that will be left off. Or you can just take irrelevancies into weird directions and nobody says, hang on a minute, what are you talking about? It's, it's almost like her reaction is real. Yes. Suddenly she's in a play she's in like a straight play and like everybody else is in a comedic performance and she just wants to be listened to and, and everybody says stop and just you know hear what i'm saying for a second Has anybody ever done that in a quentin tarantino movie oh probably <laughs> i've never seen any 
Why, why are you talking about McHale's Navy when you're about to murder me? I don't <laughs> Okay, so let's have a wee look at the episode. First of all, we've spoken about the first episode. The first episode is simply called Monday. Second episode, bit of an oddity because with each episode as it goes by, we find out a little bit more about each character. And in this case, I suppose you'd say that your main character to be psychoanalyzed is going to be Stan. But it's not usually in the case of something sort of large and grand. And yet in this particular instance, we've already got guest stars. You know, I was surprised that this was episode two. My memory was it came a lot later because it feels like the kind of thing you do when you're suddenly thrashing around for ideas. Oh, God, what can we do? I know a royal visit. It's a way of doing an engineered social anxiety. Bring in an outsider, you have to behave a certain way around. And that way you can have all the characters behave in slightly abnormal ways. Simon Williams somewhat more recognisable than he is in Kinvig. <laughs> and yeah, we, we find out a little bit about Stan's past and the, and the fact that he's met this not particularly high-ranking royal. It's not supposed to be anybody that you've ever heard of. But yet Stan's met him previously and, and his expectancy is that they're going to pick up the conversation where they left off some 30 years previously. And Bren, in a very nice way, manages to sort of engineer that situation so that that's actually what happens. It sets the... The habit then of each one in each episode, we, we tend to find out little bits about each character. And Scandal, we've already mentioned Scandal, of course, Linda Barron, and we've got we've got a lot more about Petulia all of a sudden, and, and she's all the, the focus. So I suppose in a way that the main cast, the, the canteen crew and what have you, they're sort of taking a little bit of a back seat. I know, I know, we're just in there till about like the, the royal episode, would, like that's the kind of thing that, that you'd expect in like sort of I being served series eight or something like that. You could say exactly the same about Scandal as well, I suppose. Mm. Suddenly the idea that there's a, a live television show being hosted from the canteen is like, this is the kind of thing that you sort of expect in maybe like a Christmas special or, or something like that. But then we've got episode four, Moods, and that's one where. We have lots of faces that we can recognise. And you mentioned Eric Sykes previously. So tell us why Eric Sykes suddenly arrives in this. Is it Mother's Day? It is not Mother's Day. Or is it just some sort of of works bring your mother to work day? Yes. It's one of Philippa's bright ideas, isn't it? To invite all the mothers for a tea party. And Stan can't, so he has to bring his father. And Eric Sykes is wonderfully cast. It's just how you imagine him to be, isn't it? In the case of the others, we're faintly aware that they have parents, but he's already been talking about his father being a desert rat, so we're already getting a picture in our minds of him, and he really manages to embody that picture. And whereas, of course, Stan is always very confident, and also he, he sort of broadcasts when he's fixed something, like with the toast going on the blink and so on. In a nice way, he throws his weight around about the fact that he knows what he's doing with all this. He's a top maintenance guy, and yet now suddenly there he's got his dad there saying to him, that's not how you fix it, give it here. It's a nice, busy episode. We've got Four Hard, we've got Dora Bryan, Elspeth. Is it Elspeth Gray? Is that her name? Well, actually, yes, when we're, when we're talking about a certain type that seems particularly British, can I just mention Steve Coogan's Ernest Moss? <laughs> There's elements of that in Stan <laughs> and his dad. This episode's Twinkle's moment in the sun. And again, breaking a little bit of a rule. Twinkle's mother is not like a version of Twinkle. In lazier writing, that would have been really easy to do. And we never find out why she's in a wheelchair, do we? Do we? Don't think we do. But No, good, thank you. Again, that thing of there is a life outside this set, outside this story. Here is a sign that it exists, but we're not going to tell you anymore. 
it's sure don't tell taken to a wonderful extreme. The penultimate episode in series one, Party. Again, we've got a few faces that we recognise. Jack Smithart is there. He is Dolly's husband, is that right? Yeah. And the whole, what say? Say again? (laughs) Again, there's a certain type you can write towards, but just to give him practically nothing to say. Where does this come in? And of course, we see Jean's husband for the first time as well, don't we? Because he is still a husband at this point, isn't he? What have I seen him in? Was he the stand-up comedian in As Seen on TV, the one with the perm? Was that him? Yes, I think it was, yeah. With all the table lighters. Yeah. And this episode, because they're having a Christmas party, they're having the factory's Christmas party, we get to see alcohol in play. And when we get to see alcohol in play, of course, we get to see a different side to the characters. Well, can we talk about rudeness? Rudeness. Now, what are your views on rudeness <laughs> in sitcom? <laughs> Another thing that we keep coming back to is the strange little loss of development in British culture. Alternative comedy and punk drew a line under certain things. And so you get people even now, just that whole thing of decrying something because it appears to come from a certain mindset, just from the wrong people. Whereas we've watched a lot of European television and their culture just sort of evolved, just rolled on. And I think Dinner Ladies is rude in a way that's like, yeah, this is what would have happened if mainstream culture had just kind of kept rolling along. So we have something done in that high old style. It's really from the same world in a way as No Place Like Home. But then you have mentions of, is there a mention of dildos? Twinkle's love of the word scrotum. Yeah, because doesn't... Dolly own a vibrator or something and she's persistent that it's for stiff necks and it's not a vibrator and she's like the least person out of there that you'd expect to have something like that so it's that thing they're just put there but this is not an alternative show this would not be sold as one there's Viagra as well but there's not the well Viagra is a slightly different case which we'll talk about when we come to that episode but uh, the line I'm thinking of is can you smell my Charlie (laughs) (laughs) He's also earlier in Scandal. Where's my Clint? <laughs> it's just there. It's just like there's an updating being added to this very traditional sitcom. Again, not too self-conscious, even though I do get the feeling that Victoria would put a heck of a lot of thought into how the show is going to operate. There's no, eh? See? Uh, see, it's uh, coming into the 21st century now, so I think you'll find... There's, there's no sense that this show keeps elbowing you in the ribs with how modern it is. It's just like people in workplaces who watch normal mainstream sitcoms still talk like this, though. So it's like, yes, their references are getting a little bit bluer. So let's just reflect that. I wish I actually had the precise quote in front of me, but Ivy in the cafe in Last of Summer Wine actually mentions alternative comedy by name. She says, she says something to the effect of, well, I have none of your alternative comedy here, thank you very much. So we see a little bit in this episode of, yeah, you put alcohol into a situation where you don't normally have alcohol, then you've got people behaving differently. And we see a little bit of misbehavior from Anita, for example, because she's had a bit too much. And then we've got a little bit of, shall I say, sort of Ray ish farce going on. And we've also got a little bit of business between Petulia and Tony and Stan and so on. So our first hint of the will they, won't they between Bren and Tony turns out to be a sort of they won't. But, again, penultimate episode of the series, so we've still got a little bit of time to tie up loose ends. And in that final episode of series one, 
There's a little bit of an oddity, isn't it? Because we don't have a lot of Tony in this. Because he is away getting his treatment. So we have a new manager comes in. Again, though, that is like stock sitcom plotline number 78. New person comes in and they're much, much worse and they're a job's worth and they do everything by the book and by the end, everybody wants the old person back. Now, usually the old person they want back is actually only slightly better because in this case, Tony's fine. But it's a stock plot. Reminds me a bit of uh, Pauline from the League of Gentlemen. I was actually thinking of Mackay in Pottage, the episode where he disappears, they end up with Peter Jeffrey. He's Oh very... no, I was just talking about the character, the new boss. He just reminds me of that type of person that you encounter in life. Uh-huh. Just that aggressive cuteness. Bye bye, Cushy. I love tea break extension may lead to detention. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's just a brilliant line. We've got a nice sort of team bonding exercise, which sounds a bit strange because, you know, half the staff have walked out because of this obnoxious new manager. But we've got all the staff coming back together again. Tony makes a reappearance. They all put in an all-nighter for the sake of the, the factory because the factory is trying to secure a deal, secure its future and so on. So it's quite a nice little season finale. Series 2 is when we start having the dates at the beginning of the episodes and then we start getting like big, big jumps in terms of timeline. And it's a bit of an oddity, this first one, actually, because we've got Joanne Froggett in here as a new sort of trainee. Work experience girl, isn't she? Yeah, but we don't see her again, do we? No. No, it's just work experience week, I think, at school. So we also see a bit more Sudavini here as well. And that sets up the story with Jane and Tony later on. This one, I suppose you would say, is a bit more... No, we haven't mentioned yet. Sudaveni. What other great sitcom might we have seen Sudaveni in? Sea View? Is she in Sea View? No, that was Yvette Fielding. Oh. I think she's in Children's Ward. She's in Spats! Hey! Of course she is. Yes. <laughs> and I have a feeling that you might hear us in a subsequent <laughs> Jaffa Cake It's been a long time since we mentioned Spats. We recorded that yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) It will go on afterwards. Episode one of series two is a bit more of a traditional, I suppose you would say, sitcom situation because we have basically a foreign object. We've got a ladder stuck in the canteen, which everybody's then going to sort of walk around. With dinner ladies, almost all of it takes place in that one single location. We never see any already of the factory. Apart from the last episode, we don't actually see anywhere else at all. We never go outside. There's never any location work or anything like that. So everything takes place within the very cramped surroundings. And yet this episode here is, in a way, it's sort of like the episode that you get in some sitcoms. And I think it happens in Chalk, in one episode there, where basically they've spent the budget for the series. And so suddenly we need to have everybody trapped in a lift or something of that ilk so that we don't have lots of locations. Bottle episodes, that's the name in some quarters. So this is in a way, I suppose you'd say that the, the if Dinner Ladies was actually something where you saw them all you know, going back and forth for all the different floors in the factory, then this would be his bottle episode. But as it turns out, it's the same place as usual, it's just got a bloody big ladder <laughs> in an awkward position all the way through it. Then things start picking up as far as the story arc is concerned, because episode two, this is when we've got issues with Jean and her husband. Is this the episode where, where, where Jean's actually being horrible to everybody? 
you you were saying tell about how when philip was getting annoyed at stan that you, you sort of find that sort of you know uncomfortable jean being nasty is just not at all pleasant because it's not just the fact that she's being so horrible to everybody but it's also that she is showing her capacity for being able to put down people in a way that you always sort of suspect that she's capable of with her funny put downs towards Dolly and what have you but you know that if you got on the wrong side of her that she could be really waspish and she is but in a way that goes beyond being sort of humorous and, and is actually quite hurtful. I'm surprised she's still working there. Depending how long she's been like that I'm surprised she hadn't been suspended. I think Tony can't be asked with all the paperwork of suspending someone, to be honest. <laughs> I think he'd rather just send her off on a nice holiday and tell her to come back when she's cooled down. Also, if you suspend them, would that not involve HR? So you've got to get Philippa involved and it never would, the meeting would never end. It would never start. We've also got a little bit of a, I suppose you would say, tragic situation here because, again, the will they won't they between Tony and Bren. It's not happening and we've got a little window of opportunity here to get them together and circumstances again prevent that from happening and it doesn't always happen in sitcoms does it you do get will they won't they were ultimately they don't and yeah you know, obviously that's the trick of the, the sitcom is to sort of lull you into that sort of uh sense of insecurity I suppose you could say where you start thinking oh maybe maybe it's not going to happen and of course ultimately more more times than not it does but there is that bit about she can't go on the holiday she can, she can't. That annoyed me. <laughs> that flipping back and forth. Maybe it's just because it reminded me of what happened in the Superman comics. <laughs> they decided, right, apparently in the TV series that was running at the time, it's like, right, Lois and Clark are going to get married, so we'll have them married in the comic. Okay, and we're going to do it so that it will come out around about the same time. And then the TV series decided to push that back. So they had to keep... Well, don't break the engagement off entirely because we're pretty sure the TV series are going to do it. So just keep having them flip back and forth. They're engaged. They're not engaged. Oh, there's a very good reason they can't get married. Oh, now no, maybe we'll... <laughs> <laughs> what I do like about um, the Tony and Bren pairing is like quite a lot of sitcoms or dramas, whatever, it doesn't take the centre stage. It's there in the background and you know how good friends... Ren and Tony are, and you think, yeah, I'd like them to get together, but it's not, it's not forced down your throats, and that's quite nice. But also, what I thought was quite interesting is how usually things like this happen right at the very end, like at the last episode. But obviously, the Tony and Bren things develops all the way through, and towards is it probably about three quarters into the second series, and then obviously it's about them leaving the canteen and moving on together which is nice, but it doesn't end with them just getting together. There's obviously more hindrances along the way, which makes it more interesting than, oh, they've got together now. That's it. That's the end. So we've got an unusual episode, I suppose. The, the, the episode called Fog, where we have the escape prisoner and so on. That's a bit of an oddity, I suppose. It, it's one where we've still got some development with the, the plot and what have you, but it's a bit more of a standalone episode. Yeah, I think for me it was one of the. It's it's not it's not bad. It's not a bad episode, but I think it's sort of weaker one for me. It wasn't the strongest of plots, I don't think. 
I think, again, it goes back to what we keep on saying, tell about shows on screen, which where the plot hinges on you not yeah. recognising that somebody's yes. in disguise. And even though we've never seen this... I think, that, yeah, the before, payout, we, it was too obvious. Well, the audience laughs. Yeah, that's a good point, isn't it? Yeah, the audience have spotted it. Studio audience has spotted it before the big reveal is really supposed to happen. But so. why they didn't question that nurse is beyond me. It was a bit stupid that they didn't think, oh, hang on a minute here. Something a bit fishy about this nurse. But then again... Like you were saying, it's because the audience is in on the joke and they're just oblivious to it. It's really just to set up a love interest for Stan. And the fact that they then later in the series go back on that and change love interests for Stan, there is that slight sense that at some point in the writing, this wasn't the last series. It could have ended after six or seven episodes. And in the last three, three or four, there's that sense of, right, we know we're heading to the end, so let's start tidying things up. Yeah, yeah, I see where you're coming from there. Let's give Stan a more neat and tidy ending that actually solves two problems. So having sort of jumped around the calendar and compressed several months into five episodes, suddenly we have everything happening in the space of about a week or so. And we've actually got two episodes that went out back to back on the 24th and 24th of December. And... This principally is about Christmas and a new year. This is where then we've got, the, the, in terms of the story arc, things are starting to peak now. So we've got, as you mentioned, G, we've got the appearance of Bren's ex-husband. I think he's still, technically, I think he's still a husband at that point, isn't he? Yes. Jane is still something of a threat as far as Bren is concerned towards Tony. And we've also got the situation with, Anita as well. We can tell that something is going on there. We're not quite sure what it is, but we know that something is happening with her and she's being slightly furtive. And that ultimately then reveals itself in the, as it's called, Menelium episode. And that's actually got an extra few minutes as well. It's slightly longer than the rest of the episodes. That takes place largely in real time, doesn't it? But we don't have quite so many transitions in, in Oh, that hang on a minute. Let me just suddenly jump back to series one. It's just the mention of Anita and mentioning Anita and also mentioning Philippa. Just some of those assumptions you can get with a certain type of middle class liberal. Anita's mother in the Moods episode. What does Philippa say? She has some assumptions. Doesn't she think that she can't speak much English or something? Yeah. Yes. And yeah, she's a well to do estate agent. Uh, So later on, because there's a little bit of a throwaway line about why Anita's working there. Why is she working such a low status job and just it just seems to tidy up that it's a sudden realization that oh hang on a minute. Anita could have been higher status. Oh it's dealt with, that's fine. Hand waves are okay. And of course it's really charming having little details like that just spread throughout both series. Because we we've spoken before on on the show about particularly I think drama these days, you've always got to have the explanation as to the reason for the character's angst and and you've got to have flashbacks and they've got to explain every last detail about why they are motivated to do what they do the way that they do it because of something that happened previously and nothing is left to your imagination every single thing is spelled out for you whereas here we've got you know we can sort of ponder it's, it's quite nice i mean well, shall we spoil the big revelation then when we're talking about anita oh i thought you meant the big revelation that the, the last episode features going for goals henry kelly <laughs> But no, no, I think, yes, I think I think if people have come this far, if you don't want any spoilers about what happens actually at the end of Dinner Ladies, then probably best pause your iPod now. 
So there's the whole thing, find a baby, whose baby is it? And it turns out to be Anita's. And the way that's revealed, again, it breaks the rules of pacing. And I really like it. The credits have stopped rolling. Does the music actually continue under that scene for a bit? Yes, it does. We watched it yesterday. Yes. So it's not the shock ending and then roll credits. And it's not stop credits. And it's like an episode of Crossroads where you stop credits and have a little extra scene. It's almost just kind of thrown at you. Then it's over. We're going to obviously get something next episode. And while your brain is winding down, they then hit you with the revelation. That technique actually caught one particular broadcaster out. I think it was Gold that broadcast the episode once with their automated pre-recorded voiceover intended to be on top of the closing theme, actually on top of the big revelation at the end. It wasn't as bad as what Paramount Comedy did to the Piglet Files, which was just cut the episode off with a minute to go, but... (laughs) You know, for some reason, there weren't riots in the street about that. No one was on at 4.40 in the morning and nobody was watching apart from me, but that's not the point. Automation. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? We've got, strangely enough, for the last episode, we've got a new character of sorts suddenly come in because we have a reason for Anita to be away. Anita's on a maternity leave. And we've got then Christine who comes in. I think you're probably both more familiar with the sketch show I've seen on TV than I am. But Kay adds shed. I think that she's been in Victoria Wood sketches previously. She has, yeah. She's in one of the presents, isn't she, as well? Over to Pam. Yes, she's appearing on a daytime talk show. As far as I'm concerned, she is the love interest of Roy Barraclough in Muller's Ruin. (laughs) Which we still haven't actually reviewed in the sitcom club. There's not enough to say about it. Well, the theme music is partially performed by film reviewer... Mark Kermode. I mean, if that isn't a hook, as far as you know, people being interested in the show, what what else is there? Well, you've exhausted the topic. Yeah, we've just done it right now. So we've got Christine comes in. I'm going to put forward a slightly controversial point of view. Christine is clearly horrible, and she's got some weird habits, and she's also a bit annoying with regard to sort of handing out like little sort of platitudes and what have you and bits of advice. But I still think that the staff are still a little bit mean to her, to be honest. I, I think that she, she, she's made to feel unwelcome. Jean, especially because she's probably threatened because obviously Dolly's very clearly sucking up to her and trying to be friends. And obviously I think that threatens Jean a bit. And I think that's why Jean's like that. And obviously Twinkle is closer to Anita. They're the same age. Anita's taken out the equation Christine's been brought in and she probably resents that which is probably why she's a bit funny even though well Twinkle usually is a bit funny with people anyway without probably meaning to it's just her way of communicating no Christine's horrible she's passive aggressive she's concerned trolling there's that bit when Anita's coming in and Brenda's saying you know don't say anything about you well I might have too now Christine's a bad person I can't remember her name though the character in Good Companions that comes in when herself goes and marries John Comer, and she comes in to replace her. Oh, the you one know, who goes, her, I say! I say. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, because I sort of felt a little bit similar in that, in that instance that, okay, she's not particularly likable, but she's not really been made to feel like part of the team either. But maybe that's just my way. Maybe you are that person at different workplaces you turn up at. Maybe you're the Christine. Turning up, stealing bacon. What did you do, wrap it up <laughs> and stick it in your cheeks? Or? This is not making sense now. 
to conclude, we have... Well, I suppose you would say it's a, it's a two-parter, isn't it, to conclude the series? Because we have a lot of loose ends tied up. And we won't spoil them all. We won't... We don't need to go into too much detail. I don't need to transcribe the, the episodes. Basically, we've got pretty much every loose end tied up to an extent. I mean, there would be scope for spin-offs as far as any of the characters really are concerned. But tell you, you're the guy who knows the classifications. What classification does this get as far as ending is concerned? Definitive. The format is broken. It would take a lot of heavy lifting to put it back together. That's principally the overriding issue, apart from one particular character that we won't mention because that's too much of a spoiler. But otherwise, the overriding issue is that the factory is closing. So if you're going to then continue this, you're sort of in grace and favour territory, really, aren't you? Where you've got to come up with some convoluted reason why they're all going to then reconvene somewhere else. There's a subtle little class thing going on. This is a story of a very traditional workplace then being broken up. First there's the new uniforms and the fact that everybody has to clear their own things away. And then the canteen is closed. Yeah, because the toaster breaks in that episode as well, doesn't it? And they won't replace the toaster. And then obviously it transpires that the canteen's closing. And toast clearly is the most popular item on the menu. I think it probably gets ordered more than anything else. Mm, Especially by Jane. Yeah, it's a definitive ending. And okay, it's not any big spoil to say it's a happy ending. It's a very fitting ending, I think. I think it's a nice ending. It's a contrived happy ending and good. Because (laughs) I don't think anything too realistic... Oh, I say realistic, like life only goes one way. I don't think anything too hard-nosed would have played well. I think it could have soured some of the stuff that had gone before. Yeah, definitely. It's the only sensible sort of way that it could have ended, I think. It makes the most sense that it ended how it did. Yeah, it's not... I'm going back to how you're being served again. It's not like they all suddenly do a dance routine or anything like that. It's not like, like that they just break the fourth wall. Because, yeah, it's, it's threatening to be basically we're all out of a job and, and, and that's it and this is us all going our separate ways. And, yeah, it's nicely sweetened to an extent. It's a feel-good finish. So the show's still repeated a lot, yes? The show gets repeated frequently on gold. So it's got its place as a sitcom classic. So in summary then, like I said before, geez, Dinner Ladies is one of those shows that I just really like the overall atmosphere. I like the people in it. And it's a show that I can just come back to again and again. It's like something like Open All Hours in that respect. That if it pops up in gold, then I'm just going to hit the button. I'm just going to put it on. doesn't matter if it's halfway through an episode or halfway through a series. doesn't matter what it is. On it will go. It's surprising, actually, in looking into this today, that I discovered that this was the only sitcom that Victoria Wood had written. I think they wanted to do another, and I don't think she wanted to. I think she just wanted one successful sitcom. I can't blame her, really. She's got it perfect. Oh, she was one of those creators, writers, performers who, who similar to somebody like Harry Enfield, for example, who actually appeared in some sketches in the last few years in, in Harry and Paul. But she's one of those creatives who don't like to do the same thing twice. And I think she actually said that initially the Ladies was going to be one series, but she had more ideas, there was more places for it to go and so on. So I suppose in, in, in the case of her having such an eclectic career and doing so many different things i suppose it's not so surprising that this is her sitcom and this over here this is her sketch show and then i suppose you say victoria would present i suppose you'd say that's a sort of half and half uh, i guess 
and then you've got obviously the plays and and the the, the musical items and so on. Till, what were your thoughts overall, dinner ladies? I enjoyed it. There's not really much more I can tell you. All of my little intricate reasons for enjoying it have been outlined. Could you bundle all those intricate reasons into a, say, five-second sum-up? It doesn't go the way sitcoms always go, but it works. G? I think the main part of it is just Victoria Wood's sheer talent for writing characters and just making the characters so real and beautiful thing about Victoria Wood was it's awful that we're talking about her in the past tense it really is absolutely heartbreaking but she was one of these people that she could take a mundane character an ordinary person and see the funny sides especially in the working classes without poking fun at them and laughing at them she made them special she made them interesting everyone has their own story everyone comes to work they've got their own home lives they've got their own story and she brought that and she made every single character shine and I think that's why Dinner Ladies is so wonderful it's cosy, it's funny and all the characters work they just bounce off each other it's just it's just wonderful The two things that I suppose that I would take away from it, one is that it's a genuine ensemble piece you get plenty of sitcoms that have a core cast a large cast but they can for whatever reason they can be sort of uneven they can be weighted in the direction of perhaps like a star name or whoever it might be but a lot of the people that you see in dinner ladies you've previously seen in things like as seen on tv uh, it's a lovely crew who are used to working with each other and that really comes across and the other thing of course is that like you said it's genuinely affectionate it's poking fun it's it's satirizing but also it's done with real love and appreciation of the situation and the the types of people and so on it, it comes through and it's like i think like you said till i mean victoria would she'd obviously done her research for this particular show but also because she had such a keen ear for dialogue and just how people actually do speak and interact so it doesn't sound like sitcom characters delivering sitcom she was she was I think it was Duncan Preston that said that she was the champion of the common people. She really was. Brilliant observation in that. And I think with Dinner Ladies especially, because obviously you've got your ensemble cast, the majority of them have worked with Victoria Wood in everything she's done. But you can tell that, especially in Dinner Ladies, that they're probably there out of love, not for the money they're there, because they all enjoy each other's company and they're just so passionate about working together. And that really does come across. And I think that's why each character works so well. There's the rapport... And it's just so enjoyable. It's just so watchable. If you've never seen Dinner Ladies, it is available on DVD in the UK and also it's frequently repeated on Gold as well. Till we're going to be back at the end of this month, we've still got one more edition of our class sitcom club series to go with Birdie. And we're going to be looking at the upper class, aren't we? In the meantime, you can hear of our previous shows at podnose.com. You can follow us on Twitter at sitcomclub.com. And if you've got anything at all for us, you can email us at feedback at sitcomclub.com. So, enjoy the rest of your Bank Holiday Monday. G, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Not at all. Thank you for having me. Tilt. Goodbye. And this is Gary saying this has been the Sitcom Club. <laughs>